Osiris. Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. I'm Bill Payne. I play with Little Feet. The human condition does not change that much. Right. You know, all the you know, love, hate, everything in between. I don't think that stuff's going away. I think people, artists will always want to create. They have to create. It's not that they want to, they have to. What's the old adage? If you can't, if they're not going to show up, you can't stop them. <laughs> but uh, on the other hand, if you have something that resonates with people, they're going to want to hear it. All right. Welcome back to the show on the road. I'm Z Lupitin. We are still spinning sonic yarns with the amazing Bill Payne, rock and roll pianist to the stars and one of the co-founders of Little Feet. This is the second part of our conversation going 50 years deep into the Little Feet repertoire when he started it with Lowell George coming out of an audition that maybe wasn't meant to be with Frank Zappa and his mothers of invention. But I'm sure glad that Bill and Lowell got together because my band, Dust Bowl Revival, I don't think exists without genre-bending icons like Little Feet making it all this time. Now, I have a special guest here in the podcast, my daughter JJ. Can you say hi? Sometimes nap time ends way quicker than you thought, and uh, she's going to play a little piano for us in the background, it looks like, too. I want to drop us into this conversation in a very uh, fitting place for me personally. Our group, Dust Bowl Revival, will be going back to a cabin studio in Wisconsin to finish our new record, and I'm waking up in the middle of the night with cold sweat, thinking about how we're going to create these songs, which songs we're going to pick, and will these songs last the test of time? Probably not, but you never know. Maybe my favorite thing that Bill told me, create your own audience when you're in the studio. Like it's live. That's it for me. Thank you for listening. JJ, you want to say goodbye? Bye-bye. <laughs> I think maybe, you know, Waiting for Columbus is so powerful because maybe Little Feet couldn't fully be captured correctly until there was a live record, you know? <laughs> I, I've, I've heard the same thing about our group, Dust Bowl Revival, and I've been very proud of some of the studio records we've done. I think it's very difficult to capture that raw power when you have a crowd feeling the music and you're on stage. Do you still feel that energy when you play live today? Absolutely. And I'll, I'll, I'll lay one other thing on you, too. With how do you get that cross between um, what you play in the studio and what you play live? A right. lot of it is tonality because you're hearing things bounce off the wall, whether you're in a club or if you're playing outdoors. Uh, it is certainly the, the crowd as well. And with regard to the audience itself, see, I discovered this like in, uh, quite a few years ago, but 
I start to, to take it more seriously as I, as I thought about it. I created an audience for myself when I'd be in the studio. Say I'm working on uh, with Bob Seger and the song is Hollywood Nights, which just was one of those barn burner songs. Well, I'm not in there to audition my playing. I'm, I'm, the track has already been cut, so what am I going to play on piano? It's just going to be full, flat out rock and roll. Mm. And I'm choosing, like, if it's a janitor in the studio, there's my audience. Yeah. If it's a, the guy behind the control room, that's my audience. I don't care who, who it is, but I want to, lifting what you're doing to performance level, which, right. which at the end of the day is not going to be any different, nor should it be, in terms of what you'd play in front of 10,000, 60,000 people or, or 100 people. It really doesn't matter. You're looking for that performance. And so I, th I think that's what stymies musicians sometimes is they don't, it's not a matter of taking it seriously. It's a matter of, of that thing of, wow, am I really there? Do I really know what it takes to play this? Mm. The only way to do it is, is to, to commit full time to it. I mean, like commit fully to what you're doing and mm. bring it up to performance level. There is no difference. There shouldn't be any difference at all between what you play at a club other than the sound and what you play on that record. Try it next time and see, see if I'm right. I think the thing that drives me nuts is when you lay down a track it's you're capturing a moment in time right this is the tempo at this time we think this song should be at right and then six months later when you've been playing it on the road much faster <laughs> you listen back and you're like this is totally wrong we did it so slow it makes no sense you know <laughs> we record it you know that, that's yeah. some, another, another good point you're bringing up and that little feet fully embraced you know when you listen to jazz albums they've got this is version one two three whatever right they don't right. have the same song several albums we 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 adapted the same and adopted the same uh, mentality precisely for what you were talking about yeah that's also smart. as younger players, we, we we were we weren't sure of what we were doing it was sort of the train was new i, I didn't grow up recording in a, in a studio I, I it took me a while to kind of figure out where we were. I'm better at making quicker decisions. It still doesn't mean that you might not do the opposite and say, hey, we were just on speed that night. Uh, not literally, but just yeah. you're, you're up there way too fast. And the groove will might sit better at this tempo. Pull it back a little bit, that kind of thing. But uh, unless you're trying to create a record for a... Uh, uh, that's going to be playing on the radio, which doesn't happen very often anymore. I don't think the restraints that 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 were there in place back in the day are, are they're not there anymore. This is like, how do you reach an audience and how do you uh, convey what your music is to them? And and I think it's fair game to say, hey, look, you know, yeah, this song, and I love the name of your band, by the way. Uh, uh, this is what we were doing a year ago, and here's what we're doing now. Dig it. Mm. You know, boom. Yeah. I think it's fair. Good. 
I love the uh, the keyboard work, especially the intro on uh, a song like uh, Long Distance Love from uh, the last record album, 1975. Is something like that improvised on the spot or do you actually script out that whole sort of almost orchestral beginning? You're talking about the thing that we when we re-recorded re uh, Long Distance Love with the new band? I think so. Yeah, it has has this really beautiful yeah. kind of intro from you. Yeah, I, it, it was improvised, uh, and it didn't take me but a second to figure it out. Um, it, show it just, off. Yeah, I know. I am a show off. I'm just... <laughs> but it's... it's To me, music is, is a conversation. So if I sit down... I'm at my house. I don't know if I can move this thing or not, but I've got a piano here. So if I'm just saying, it flows out of me like, I hope sometimes when the words hit, as a writer, you sit down right. to, to write. Uh, like the description I made of, of Richie and I, in this, we weren't even in the studio. We're just rehearsing someplace. But that was the, the ideas of two crisscrossing tornadoes yeah. at each other. Uh, staying away from adult supervision, that kind of thing. Until uh, they start screaming, no, stop. <laughs> yeah. You guys have had to, you know, endure some some pretty tough um, losses, you know, throughout the years, and you somehow recovered and put the train back on the track so elegantly. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, you lost Lowell very young. And um, did you think that maybe Little Feet would just sort of be a, a a part of your history and then you'd move on to other things? I did at the time. And when we put it back together in 1988, there was a few people, more than a few, uh, both in the media and without, that said, look, you said without Lowell George, it's not Little Feet. I yeah. said, yeah, I did say that. And I that's what I believed at the time. And I've elevated and... and have grown into to this this mode of thinking, and uh, so I said it's uh, it's called evolution. Yeah, you know, so you evolve into things, and uh, I think keeping keeping the music true to the values of what the band are that's not as tough as it might sound because we play so many different styles. I took my impetus from a, a 1966 again. This is with the Yardbirds. I went. To Pismo Beach, California, at the Rose Gardens, to hear Jeff Beck. Well, mm. Jeff Beck wasn't playing that night, but the guy that was playing was Jimmy Page. Mm. And I went, "Wow!" I was, I was pissed off. But I went, "I know Jimmy Page was right, but but it was, it was it was unbelievable." So we so when we were putting Little Feet back together, I said, "You can't replace Lowell George. We're not trying to replace him." Does our music still resonate without him? And but knowing that he's embedded in that music, and the answer was yes. Was yeah. it going to translate everybody that heard it? No. But nothing does. When we did Dixie Chicken, there was there was a review of our album that goes, "All the songs sound the same." <laughs> I go, <laughs> "Okay, great." <laughs> Next, you can't do anything in this life where people go uniformly, "Oh, that's great," or "That sucks." There's always going to be somebody that thinks, you know, something's okay, something's not. Uh, I'm not playing to those people. I don't denigrate them either. I'm just saying uh, live where you want to live. But there's a lot 
you might want to open yourself up to. Uh, being that we inherently already cut ourselves off by talking ourselves out of far more things than we talk ourselves into, um, <laughs> that's the human condition. So I, I like talking myself into things. And and if if this thing didn't resonate, you and I would not be talking about it. And you, your questioning and, and, and comments have been very eloquent, uh, Z. I mean, so obviously... Appreciate that. I, I, you know, I talk to a lot of people, and, and uh, so I get it when somebody actually gets what we've done and what we're doing, and you certainly do. So thank you for that. Well, I think you know, you guys have also had to endure the just economic realities of uh, the label system. You know, obviously not having some sort of big transformative hit right in your first few records. You know, Warner Records you know, they're like, wait, what are we supposed to do with these guys, right? And then basically I read that you guys would sort of record the records and then you guys would all sort of have to play in other bands and it's almost like the the, the existence of the band was almost always in question whether or not it could survive, right? Because back then, if you didn't right. have a gold record, that's it. It's like, like you would be cast aside, you know? And then years later the this the the records sort of rose to the top you know with waiting uh, for columbus and and then people rediscovering dixie chicken are there bands that you played with um and obviously you said the doobie brothers um that sort of really sh helped shape you as a songwriter and as a musician the most not so much uh well, I, let me back that up uh that's a great question i don't think anybody's really put it to me like that before um, I don't know that anybody shaped me as a songwriter so much, but playing six years with James Taylor was a real eye opener. Oh, cool! I love James' music, and and uh, I, I felt uh, an affinity to him as a human being, and loved his songwriting, loved his just approach to music. Uh, he's a very, very vulnerable guy when I when I first met him, and he. Uh, one of those guys, the first one I, I really witnessed that, that survived uh, the downfall of a lot of other people, which were too many drugs, too much alcohol, etc. Yeah, He came through that. You know? So I, I admire him greatly for, for that. But in terms of songwriting and that, I think it's, I, mean, I just take the normal course uh, that most people do. I, I, I put more emphasis on, uh, and I've never worked with him, but Keith Richards, let's say, with the guitar style that he plays, mm. kind of shaped a lot of what I would play with, say, a Wurlitzer mm. in, in the studio or, or playing live with people, playing rock and roll. Some of the Keith Richards kind of licks, type of licks that he would play. Do you remember? They so, so they're moving. They're not like straight right. shots on a G-board. Uh, you might be that kind of thing. And... Uh, but yeah, uh, a little Richard's piano playing, um, some of the really early Elvis stuff. I, I the, the, those 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 kind of things began to shape uh, who I was as a uh, not only a player, but as you said earlier, with the the intricacy of of the playing that went along with Dixie Chicken. I've written twenty songs with Robert Hunter. I I, I like to I want to make my music as interesting as Hunter's lyrics. Uh huh. I've always felt that way. You've been in in the presence of 
obviously what many people would consider geniuses, right? People with a supreme gift um, that can be a curse too. I think sometimes uh, people can't experience a full life when they're so tapped into some otherworldly um, force. And obviously a lot of folks, you know, didn't make it out of the sixties and seventies genius level people that you wish could have been around today for people like me to see, you know, do you feel like uh, there was a certain person or or people that you were in the presence were like, this is they're connected to some otherworldly force? Yeah. I mean, Jimi Hendrix was unbelievable as a player. And it was just a short burst with him too. I mean, it didn't, you didn't see him live? I did. I saw him. Uh, he was in Europe when I was there in 67. But I was too, too afraid to go to the, to the gig in London to hear him play. So when I got back home, he was playing uh, at the Earl Warren show, Showgrounds in Santa Barbara. And I, because I was on home turf and felt a little more, you know, relaxed or whatever, I, I went and heard him there. And then the second time I heard him was also in Santa Barbara, but it was outdoors. He had his back to the audience. He's standing ramrod straight. And a few months later, he's gone. So, I mean, I just, I don't know. I was happy to be able to witness him. Uh, Lowell George was one of those guys, too, that just, uh, as a mentor, in the very early going of the band, I felt he was tapped into something that uh, his phrasing was was genius to me uh, as a singer, as a songwriter, get away with lyrics. Um, I, that's something in my book I want to write about. I, I'm not there to, to denigrate Lil George and his fall. Uh, I want to show who he was as exactly what you're talking about. If If for some reason he could come back for a set, what would be the first song you'd love to hear him sing with you guys? Again, yeah. well, I don't know. Uh, Trouble. <laughs> I, I, Fred Tackett is in our band, and, and he was out on the road when Lowell passed, and I was in Los Angeles uh, at the time. But we both have dreams about him. Mm. I, I dream about Paul as well, Paul Barrett as well. Uh, but yeah, it's just. As the dreams go, it's not so much what he would sing. It's like, where were you? I thought yeah. you were gone. And it turns out there's this guy that I was in a band with in, in the Santa Barbara area. who We all thought passed away in 1968. And his tombstone says he passed in 1970 or something like that, or 69. Uh-huh. And so was he like, did they put it wrong on the tombstone? Or did he disappear? For a year or more, that kind of thing. So you just never know. It's just crazy stuff. All right, you could put together your own fantasy dream band. Okay, who would be the instrumentation, dead or alive? Anyone you want? Yeah, well, I think on drums, uh, play with Alvin Bishop. I mean, uh, excuse me, Alvin Jones. Mm. With Coltrane, all those guys. I like to have on sax uh, Wayne Shorter. Okay. Bass, uh, got so many great players. Abraham Laborial on bass would be fantastic. Um, this would just this would just be for for being able to uh, just sit and, and improvise. 
with these people. You know, not not you know, we 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 would gravitate towards some form of jazz, I'm sure, but it'd be instrumental in any case. And that's the thing. So if you were doing like little Richard kind of rock and roll, you you'd want Earl Palmer on your drums, right? Mm-hmm. So those are the way my dreams work. It's like that multi mm-hmm. uh, the way you described it earlier. It's it's uh, that's the way dreams are are meant to be framed. Is how big is your dream? You know. I just I wish that there was a way there was a little shoot where you could kind of slide down into like nineteen. Uh, 55 where my grandparents would just go into New York and see a movie and then they'd go see Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong just playing in a club and it was like yeah I'll get a couple of drinks and then head home that was just like a nice exactly. Friday evening <laughs> like <laughs> man that's so unfair that I couldn't see that well you might you might wind up seeing it depending on how uh, how things go in the future with, with, with music and if we're not all replaced by artificial intelligence, uh, which I don't <laughs> think will happen immediately, but it's going to happen on some levels, and it already has. But uh, what I what I tell people on that level of, of intimacy that you're talking about with 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 the arts, that is not going away. I don't care if there's artificial intelligence or not. People are still going to want to hear. Um, Somebody that can really play the piano or, or sing or a group that can play, they're going to still want to see that. They may not be in the 60,000 range or 60 people. I don't know. I, I don't have any clue as to where all that's going. But I can tell you that just the way you described it, of going into a club to hear somebody of the level that you're talking about, which is Ella Fitzgerald. Mm-hmm. Uh, or I went to a small place and heard... It's like hearing Mose Allison play or uh, mm-hmm. going to a small club and hearing the Mahavishnu Vishnu Orchestra. I don't know. I mean, right. you just uh, get blasted out of your seat. That's the, that's the continuum that we've been talking about throughout this conversation. It's just that. Where do those lines go out and who they intersect with? There's always an audience. Whether if you're just in a room playing by yourself, yeah, you are playing for yourself, but there's that thing that known or mm-hmm. unknown, seen, unseen, that's there, that is who are you playing it for beyond yourself? Right. And that's, that's part of your ego that goes, God, I wish somebody could hear me doing this, and boom, the spell is, is broken. <laughs> yeah. I kind of think. Was there a concert when you were a kid that you saw that sort of made you go, you know, I really want to do this, not just like, oh, I want to play piano because my mom thinks I should play my piano. Is there Was there a, a concert where you were like, wait a second, this is important, I want to do that? I never put it in those terms, although I probably should have. Uh, my first band I auditioned for was to play drums after my teacher passed. And I played piano, by the way, maybe in the beginning a little bit for for the adult thing, but 
I quickly gravitated to my own thing when I discovered what the piano actually meant to me, which was, A, a refuge, mm. and something that I could interpret what was outside the walls of my house and try and bring that back in. Uh, so as a visual artist, I would try and replicate what I saw at the beach, whether it was the waves crashing, the seagulls, the, the spray off the waves. When I sat at the piano, what did that sound like? Um, so in terms of bands, the first band that I really got caught up with with everybody else was the Beatles. Um, but I, I wasn't so sure because they didn't have a keyboard, at least at that time, if ever, that I would have thought, how do I, how would I blend into something like that? Uh, it, it was just, it, it happened on a more, uh, I literally stumbled on this piano and picked up the piano lid and started playing it in the middle of auditioning to play drums. And they go, wait a second, you play the piano? I go, well, I guess. And um, <laughs> I said, forget this group. we got another group down the street called the Debonairs. You're going to play piano or you're going to play keyboards in that group. And um, that was when I was age 15. I'm 74 and I'm still playing in bands. Is there a show or a festival that you've played in the last, you know, several decades where you're like, this is the biggest, most insane thing I've ever played? Like your rock and roll god moment? Well, I tell you this. I mean, there's a lot of them. Uh, I talked about the Stones coming to hear us. Uh, Bob Dylan was at the, the bottom line in New York. And when I met him, I was, well, I was Phil Lev, and Dylan was playing on that gig too, not with Phil, but on his own band. I wanted to introduce him to my son. And Dylan walked in and goes, Bill, you remember the bottom line? I go, how does Bob know my name? And, and, I, and yeah, yeah, I do. You were you were like right, just center right, and you scared the hell out of him. And, um, <laughs> uh, other than that, uh, Chris Staten at the Santa Barbara Bowl, who played with Mad Dogs and Englishmen, I could see him at the very top of the hill, grooving to our music. I went, that is just unreal to me. I mean, I love Chris Staten. Uh, to, to see him up there bopping the little feet was just, wow. Or seeing Jerry, Jerry Garcia on the side of the stage uh, checking us out at one of the gigs we played with, with the Grateful Dead. Um, there's a lot, of, a lot of those big moments that you just think, well, this, this is what I've worked to do. And, uh, and to see it unfold like that, you're just like, this is why we have those dreams. You know? this like really vivid dream years ago where I was playing this little bar in Culver City and for some reason like I looked over and in the corner 
was Bob Dylan and Tom Waits, and they were both watching our <laughs> show. <laughs> That's pretty cool. It was like Nighthawks at the diner. They were like having like a a drink in the corner and being like, "Yeah, this is pretty good." <laughs> <laughs> That's, that's great, man. That's cool. I, well, I appreciate I appreciate everything that you've created. Uh, and, you know, if you were to play a song, you know, for the last time, let's say you were um, about to drift into the next world and you could play one Little Feet song on your way out, what would it be? No, I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a great question, but I, I just... I wouldn't know what to do. I, uh, maybe you have to put on your sailing shoes. You know, you have to put on the sailing shoes. Yeah, maybe sailing shoes. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, there's just so many songs. You know, also with with life and death, uh, how are you feeling at that moment? You know, <laughs> it's, uh, I just have to, it's like a, a lot of your questions were centering on something singular. Right. And my, my my uh, overall attitude is like: Do you want to have mashed potatoes or do you want the uh, the kimchi? No. <laughs> Whatever you're after, or kimchi potatoes. Like, uh, kimchi potatoes. So I, I want. I think in these broader terms. So it, it's not a bad question. It's a wonderful question, in fact. But I don't know how to answer it because it's not the way I think. I think it'd be a cool combination one day with Dust Bowl yeah. Revival and Little Feet in one place. I think it'd be a really cool combination. I like to I'll, say I'll, I'll, I'll try to manifest it somehow. There you go. Please do. That'd be cool. All right, man. Keep up the good work. Well, dude. Thanks again, Z. It was a pleasure. Yeah, man. This guy has played with everybody, the Doobie Brothers, James Taylor, Emmylou Harris, Jackson Brown. Uh, look him up. He is the secret sauce to all your favorite classic rock and roll, soul, funk, and more. Uh, my name is Zach Lupiton. I'm so glad you're here on the show on the road. If you can, please leave us a kind review uh, on the iTunes page and uh, spread the show on the road with your friends if you can. Um, go back and listen to part one of my talk with Bill Payne and the previous episodes on this season. I'm with my co-editor, J.J. Lupiton here. Can you say hi? Hi. And uh, we're going to sign off for now. Uh, more episodes coming very soon uh, on the show on the road. Uh, as always, the show on the road is written, produced, and edited by yours truly, Zach Lupiton. And we are part of the Osiris Podcast Network. Say bye-bye, J.J.
Bowie, Dylan, Marley. You've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs, but what about the stories behind the records that made titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.